young, the world seems so old, careless and cold. We did what we were told in our lives when we were young. Had the world by the tail, good would prevail, starships would sail, and none of us would fail in this life. Not when you're young. We were drawn to whoever could keep us together and bound by the heavens above. And we tried to survive traveling at the speed of love. Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Ifschecker. And I'm Oliver Brady. And on this podcast, we watch movies, TV shows, and we read books. And we look at how to depict the medieval world. We look at both historical fiction and medieval-esque fantasy. And then we say to ourselves, what does this tell us about how people in our time view the medieval times? Yeah, we talk about what they get right and what they get wrong. And uh, so I'm doing this podcast because I teach medieval history and my students often come in getting a lot of things wrong. And it's often because they've seen medieval movies. Ollie, why did you want to do this podcast with me? Uh, I want to do this podcast because Sarah needed somebody to do it. She was like, I need a co-host who's charismatic and entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. I uh, I did it because I, I, like to, uh, I like to watch movies where people get stabbed with swords and Boy, howdy, do we have a movie where people get stabbed with swords today. Um, this is the movie which was recommended by our, uh, in our last episode by uh, our last guest, um, Tracy Tanoff. I think recommended and might be a stretch as opposed to wanted to hear us talk about it. I don't want to be insulting I, toward Tracy. I think she <laughs> recommended it. I, I'm going to play the audio back right now. Ollie and Sarah, this is the bestest movie I've ever seen. It's better than any Jane Austen adaptation that has ever been done, ever. Poor Tracy. <laughs> that was, that was I, she said it, it wasn't me. It was, it was most definitely her her own voice there in that thing. But um, this movie we're doing is The Three Musketeers from 2011. Sarah, will you tell us who is in this movie? Yes, yeah, so we have uh, Matthew McFadden as Athos in uh, perhaps his worst performance that I've seen to date. Uh, Logan Lerman is D'Artagnan, a man who I have not seen in anything, and I thank God for that every day. Wait, look, you've never seen Logan Lerman? Yeah. No, I haven't seen him in but anything. What's he in? He's, per- he's Percy Jackson. I've never seen the Percy Jackson movies. You are not missing out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I could handle... An entire series of movies that's supposed to be carried by Logan Lerman, based I, on having seen this. I saw one of those in the cinema. Why? Um, nieces and nephews. And okay. They were like, let's go to the cinema, Uncle Ali. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay. Um, and then I went down, what's in the cinema? And at the time, it was like Percy Jackson and Sea of Thieves. And then like four over 18s movies. And I was like, uh, can I get away with taking a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old? <laughs> Maybe I can. We'll see. But uh, no, I, 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 I did the dutiful thing and took them to the children's me. Is he supposed to be the son of Zeus or something like that? I mean, is he like Perseus? Is that what the deal with this movie is? He's 
Poseidon's son. Okay. <clears throat> I think that's how. Yeah, I, it's been, no, it's been a while since I, I did, but I think so. There's uh, Poseidon, the Zeus, and Hades are like the three rulers of the realms or whatever it happens to be. Right. And and of all of the demigods that exist, Poseidon doesn't have any kids, I think. Or He's Poseidon. General, yeah. So In South Poseidon. But it turns out that Percy Jackson is this long lost kid of Poseidon's. I, I mean, I could be getting this completely wrong. I, I, I'm trying to remember it because it's just they're not great. I mean, I'm honestly just trying to think about the fact that Greek mythology is a kind of sketchy basis for a children's movie in itself. And that the presumption is, of course, that Poseidon then slept with slash if you actually read a lot of Greek mythology, like maybe raped some human woman. And like, what's the deal with all that? I mean, I'm just thinking back to the like collection of Greek myths that I had as a kid that was written for kids and that still could not manage to make Greek mythology not super dirty. It's yeah, it's super like the stuff is basically <laughs> creepy like and a lot of times they're they're animals like they come down in the form of animals and then seduce women you're like why i don't think women want to sleep with swans or or cows though there's uh they do something fun with the cow situation in uh, the book circe which i recommend you would recommend it but anyway mm-hmm. Logan Lerman's in this as D'Artagnan uh, now we've already covered the Three Musketeers um, in the uh, the infinitely better 1993 version uh, which had an, also a very bad actor Chris O'Donnell playing D'Artagnan and I remember when we were watching that we were like let him die and all this sort of stuff but deep down I, I, I think he kind of grows on you throughout the movie I mean he doesn't he's, he's a twat like but he at least has some form of charm about him he's a twat but he's our twat yeah i wanted i wanted to kill logan lerman from the first second he was on this oh screen. god no he's the worst i feel like he barely even deserved to let him die it was just let him just never have existed i i actually genuinely think we went through this movie without a let him die i think we're too bored neither of us yeah neither of us could get the uh the gumption to be like yeah i hope this character dies it was just like <sighs> i hope this movie ends <laughs> exactly <laughs> does it and then what it does oh my god we can talk about the ending when we get there but oh this god. movie is one of those movies that just has an end where you okay we've we've come up on time so it's time to have an ending and on we're gonna have a stinger and the stinger's gonna not make any sense whatsoever but it's definitely gonna be setting up a um a sequel and thank god that did not happen no um so we had Logan Lerman as D'Artagnan, uh, and then who played the rest of the Musketeers there? So we had Ray Stevenson as Porthos, and uh, Luke Evans, uh, Gaston, throwing back some eggs as Aramis. So you, I, I love the fact that you you mention Luke Evans was Gaston, mm-hmm. um, but you don't mention Matthew McFadden, the uh, Sheriff of Nottingham, or Ray Stevenson, who was the Punisher. Uh, I've actually in, never in Punisher Warzone. seen part of any of the Punisher things. So I'm actually not a hundred percent sure I've seen Ray Stevenson in something though. I might have. He was in Rome. He was in okay. Rome. And Matthew McFadden, I just didn't mention because I feel like we've already talked about him because he's been in a number of other movies that we watched. Yeah. 
in all of which he is better than in this movie he this is not his finest hour um then we get orlando bloom as buckingham i have a lot of issues with buckingham being in the movie at all um he doesn't need to be in the movie he just needs to be a shadowy figure that they're fighting against he doesn't need to be center stage in the movie he certainly does not need to be essentially the main villain and what i deeply do not understand about this movie is that so they cast christoph waltz waltz excuse me christoph waltz as richelieu and mads mickelson as rochefort and then they decided to give those two very talented actors nothing to do and to make Orlando Bloom our main villain. It beggars belief, because <laughs> when we first mentioned watching this, I, I, I'd i fallen asleep the first time I tried to see this. <laughs> but um, myself and Sarah were like, oh, Christoph Waltz. And then Sarah was like, Mads Mikkelsen. We are, we're all mad about Mads. Yeah. Um, and then the two of them are sidelined so much that it's kind of ridiculous it's very disappointing yeah um yeah and then we also have mila jovovich as milady de winter um after we finished watching this i was like sarah mentioned that it was the movie was directed by um paul anderson the shitty uh, paul, paul anderson the, the shitty paul anderson <laughs> and then it dragged up a memory of me which was like i think they might be married so sarah looked it up for us and yeah mila jovovich is married to paul ws anderson and that makes a ton of sense because her character has been fleshed out, as they say. Um, and yeah, she's she's basically become a ninja in this movie. It also might explain why her boobs have more character development than most other people in this movie. Yeah, um, <laughs> definitely than most of the Musketeers anyway. Uh, it's, oh God. I We're going to get into this in our, our first section in Numeratio. Inumeratio. But for the listeners, please be prepared for a lot of. <sighs> also, a lot of cursing. Well. <laughs> <laughs> well, the cursing will come from Sarah, of course. I, on the other hand, will not be cursing because I am a man of class and distinction. A real Mads Mickelson, if you will. <laughs> well, I. I don't know if any of my students will ever listen to this, but uh, if they do, that will be the greatest difference between uh, this <laughs> persona on the podcast and my actual teaching persona will be that I swear a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you're not talking about this movie while you're doing your course. Hopefully not. Um, so the movie, like all versions of The Three Musketeers, uh, begins in Venice. Clearly. Um, where The Three Musketeers played you know Athos, Portos and Aramis uh, with the help of Milady Winter um, they're breaking into Leonardo da Vinci's steampunk vault to steal his steampunk steel airships that's right everybody just in case we didn't point this out this is a steampunk movie yeah and also Leonardo da Vinci made designs for steampunk airships yeah <laughs> I can I can read the disdain in your voice Sarah Decker <laughs> Are you saying that he didn't? This is Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah, he did not. <laughs> but anyway, they... Oh, God. They break into this vault using the special keys that they collected from three different people in Venice. Also... Whom they, they murdered. Just ran, they're just murdering people. Yes. Uh, and then Aramis takes the time out to bang a girl on a boat. Yes. How did he have time to do that? 
I, I mean, I guess he was probably, almost as fast as Chris Pine, but... I That's what I'm getting <laughs> at. He was super, super quick because the way he said it, she was like, uh, oh, uh, I'm not a lady. And then he's like, I've got five minutes. I was like, is it... Do you, you're breaking into a vault? You, do you really have five minutes? But okay. Also, um, that's not saying, oh, I can get done and get it done in five minutes. That's not much of a turn on. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> much. Like, I mean, for the lady, maybe it was her first time. Um, and as we know from Outlaw King, that a two minute Chris Pine is enough to get a girl off in two minutes. Apparently. Uh, during her first time. But um, yeah, it's just, this is genuinely I could probably speak all day about this movie or this part one scene they're randomly killing people they're all crazy super good assassins Um, there's a point where Portos has been caught uh, for being a spy and then he basically does a Roshark a Rorschach um, God why am I pronouncing that so weird I know that's not how that word is pronounced <laughs> God, um, but he he does so he put he plays a watchman on it, and he's like, oh, I let you catch me because, and then he just escapes and starts beating people with like st- he pulls his right. mounted chains out of the wall and then uses the concrete that they are attached to to knock people out with. Yeah, it's, sure, buddy. Um, yeah. Um, he also speaks with a French accent. Sarah, would you like to do an impression of his French accent? Vive la France. That's pretty much his accent. He sounds like a like depressed middle school student. Uh, um, yeah, it is so. It's like Vive la France. Yeah. Also, Athos is dressed like this like steampunk medieval Arab, and I have no idea what they were trying to do with that costume. You mean when he comes up out of the water at the start yeah. because he's been breathing underneath the water? Yes, his medieval Arab scuba gear. Yeah, he also throws a a knife from underneath the water, which accelerates out and is coming with enough speed to kill somebody. I don't even ever want to get into the physics behind how that would never work. Uh, And his arm (laughs) speed would... like Just to put things into context, he would have to throw his arm forward as if he was pitching a baseball at 200 miles an hour. (laughs) to be able to get a knife to leave water and accelerate out the way it does. It's yeah. nonsense. Is your particular hatred of steampunk rooted in the ridiculous physics, in part? Uh, a lot of it is, okay. yeah. A, a lot of it is... Right, see, I don't want to get into too much steampunk because we're not going to have to come across a lot of steampunk on, on media, media Evil. So I try not to come across a lot of steampunk in my entire life. But it's the fact that steampunk people... And people who write about steampunk, just the the idea, I, I get it, I understand. It's like, what happens if we'd have created steam energy a little bit further and we'd been slightly more technologically advanced? I'm like, yeah, this is great. Like, that's fine. I understand this perfectly. But when they fundamentally don't understand that steam wouldn't be able to do 90% of the stuff that they're talking about. It's like, right, I mean, the technology uh, makes no sense. It doesn't look like exactly. any technology has existed ever, and that seems like it might be the case for a reason. <laughs> but the idea that in a world where you've got airships, you would still be fighting with swords. Like, have one or the other, right. guys. Like, don't, 
don't be don't be mixing up. Don't get me wrong. I love swords. I I genuinely do. Um, but come on, like, yeah, just oh, yeah, but just so they get into Leonardo da Vinci's vault and they come across the blueprints for his airship. This wonderful thing, which was several centuries uh, ahead of its time, and they are about to celebrate when. Milady the Winter gives them all something to drink. And they all like, yeah, let's toast. And they drink it. And then it turns out that she's drugged them all. And in walks Orlando Bloom as the Duke of Buckingham. And he's like, come with me, Milady the Winter. Let's go away. Despite the fact that he's playing it very kind of a fet. Um, and she's yeah. clearly not into him. But it's kind of implied they're together now. Right, and that she'd been with Athos previously and now is dumping him as well as betraying him, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. She's I like, really can't muster up caring that much about any of them. Yeah, it's really weird. Uh, and then later on when what actually finally happens to her, sorry, what we think finally happens to her. Don't forget, people, there's a stinger coming at the end of this movie. But um, when we think what finally happens to her, like Athos is like, she did that for me. No, what? <laughs> she didn't. All right, sure, whatever, dude. Oh. Also, so they, so when they're drugged, they blur all of the other, all of the figures, and so you know to kind of signal that that's what it looks like to them because they're drugged. Mm-hmm. It gave me like it gave me such a headache. It was really irritating. Yeah, it's that a, was a, poor it's a weird choice. effect. But an even bigger headache is what happens next when we skip to a year later and have to see D'Artagnan. <laughs> D'Artagnan, who is hanging out with his dad, who's still alive in this movie. His dad is telling him, go off and have adventures like I did. I'm played by uh, Dexter Fletcher, uh, who used to be on Grange Hill when I was a kid. Um, but I, I'm, I'm playing your dad. You go off and, and have fun in Paris. Here's a horse that looks like a cow. Yep. And, yeah. And then on his way to Paris, he runs into Captain Rochefort. Yeah. Played by... The wonderful Mads Mikkelsen. Mads! I was so excited for like five minutes. He's really good at this very, <laughs> in this first scene. No, he's he is. Genuinely he is great good. in this scene. So Mads insults the horse, which is totally deserved because the horse really does look like a cow. But that, that's the thing about it. He's not even insulting the horse. Like D'Artagnan pulls up uh, just outside of Paris, um, comes to the stables, and then Mads and his friends are laughing. And then... D'Artagnan comes over and goes, what are you laughing at? And he's like, oh, my friends and I were debating whether or not that was a horse or a cow. It's a black and white. It looks like a Frisian cow. Yeah, no, it totally looked like a cow. I've grown up with horses. My uncle was a horse (laughs) trainer. I spent many, many years hanging out with horses and cleaning up after them in stables and stuff. I've never seen a horse that looks like that. I'm not saying that horses don't look like that, but it genuinely looks like somebody painted a horse to look like a cow. Oh, yeah, it's a weird looking horse. Yeah. Uh, and then Rochefort's like, yeah, we, we thought it was a cow. And then, um, <laughs> and then D'Artagnan challenges him to a duel. And as he turns around to take off his, uh, his cloak he's wearing and he turns back, Rochefort just shoots him. As he should. Um, which is pretty, it's pretty cool. Like, it's pretty badass as well. Because as we find out later on, Rochefort is a ridiculously good swordsman. He could have had a duel with him. He was just like, no, why would I? You're not worth my time, which is badass. Yeah, which is very, very badass. Um, but Milady the Winter just happens to come 
buy at this particular time. Because why not? Looks looks out through the thing. She's like, oh no, he's too pretty to kill. Please let him live. And then Roaster's like, all right, whatever. Yeah, Logan Lerman like, is not pretty enough to justify that. Yeah, he's not. He's <laughs> he's got this weird haircut. He looks like a boy band member from the eighties. <sighs> God, I hate this movie. So bad. So D'Artagnan gets to Paris. Separately encounters uh, all of the three musketeers, and uh, all of them end up challenging one another to a duel, mostly because he's an asshole. But it, in all three cases, I think it is because he's an asshole. Like, there's no. That, with the exception of Porthos, um, like, for example, right, so he runs afoul of Athos because he runs into him on the street. Right. And then Athos. And then, like, refuses like, to apologize, pretty much. Yeah, just do just apologize. All you have to say is sorry, because it's clearly D'Artagnan's fault. He runs straight into him because he's chasing after Rochefort, even though he's just been shot in the arm. Um, he is coming past Porthos, and he thinks he's doing Porthos a favor because he hands him back like Porthos was having a woman pay for something for him. And Porthos is being a bit of a tit, but D'Artagnan could have walked off like three or four times, but he escalates it to dual level. And then with Aramis, Aramis is working. Uh, and cites him because his horse crapped on the street. So essentially he gives like, him a parking ticket, which is apparently uh, what the musketeers are doing in this movie. Yeah, because they've been, I think that's the idea is that they're they're being minimized to the point where they're just filling in as uh, like town watchmen kind of thing. Right. Uh, because uh, Richelieu is taking over looking after the king. And it's just, it's nonsense. Because uh, like yeah. D'Artagnan ch- is like, oh, you've given me a ticket. I'm going to meet you at two o'clock in the old yard, and we will have ourselves a fight. And like, I'm thinking, like, what does he think is going to happen if he stabs the guy who gave him the ticket? He's not going to have to pay his fine. I'm pretty sure under U.S. law, that's how it works. Oh well, in that <laughs> case, if, if I'm in the states at any stage this year, I'm going to just make sure that if I I'm going to park wherever I want and then challenge people to do. Ju- oh wait, no, Americans all have guns. No. Yeah, um, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't challenge that. anyone to a duel, but I mean, just keep in mind that I'm pretty sure the ticket does go away if you murder the person who gave it to you. Oh, and this leads to this is it's 100 my least favorite bit of this movie. He meets the three of them, and. Athos goes, I'm Athos, this is Portus, and this is Aramis. And D'Artagnan goes, oh, you're the Three Musketeers. Hey, that's the name of this movie. <laughs> like, you're like, what? They're not the Three Musketeers. They are Three Musketeers, yeah, sure. Right, it's but not like not... that's like a name that they are known as. It's just absolute nonsense. Um, and then Richelieu's guards show up to arrest him, Um and we have another scene where I was actively getting angry while I was watching it um, because the guards come to arrest them. The musketeers aren't preparing to defend themselves. I don't think they're going to go quietly or easily, but they, they are getting arrested because they should have given up their stuff with the rest of the musketeers. Right. Um, and they're just kind of standing there. They're not doing anything. And then D'Artagnan starts killing people. Yeah. Like... He has no reason to do this except for the fact that he recognizes uh, Rochefort. Rochefort comes in and says, I want you guys to lay down your arms or whatever. And then D'Artagnan just starts attacking the Cardinal's guards. 
um, he's fighting like seven and eight people at a single time. I, now I have. This could be just my own personal thing. I hate movies where people fight more than like if you're fighting more than two or three guys in at a time, you're not winning the fight, and you're definitely not coming out of it without a scratch, right? Yeah. Um, I so things like Kill Bill. Uh, where she fights the crazy 88s and stuff like this. I hate that. I hate any of those wushu movies where people are fighting 10 and 11 opponents. D'Artagnan basically runs in to attack 40 guards. Right. And at some point, the musketeers start helping them, helping him, which honestly, they really shouldn't have bothered doing. That I was saying this to Sarah before. I would have loved if they just walked off. Yeah, that would have been great. Then oh, we wouldn't have had to watch the rest of this movie. He's distracted us. He's distracted the guards from us. Let's just go out the back way, lads. Yeah. Um, and then the crowd are cheering them on, and uh, Rochefort walks off, and they're like, "Yeah, let's get this, get this done. Like we can fight them off." And then they they legit end up either like they must have killed twenty men. I think it might have been like forty. Cause they they definitely beat forty of them. Yeah. But. I, they, at least 20 of them are dead and I don't mean like actually dead yeah yeah they they are actually dead because they get stabbed with swords through the chest area yeah like, like those people are not coming back and I hate to keep constantly comparing this to the 1993 version the 1993 version they fight six dudes between the four of them where they fight one each and then Aramis takes the extra two because right. he's meant to be really good with his sword. That's the whole point. Uh, but each of them fights one guy each. And then when the other guards show up, they all head off on their horses and D'Artagnan runs forward and gets knocked out. Right. Like It makes much more sense. It, it makes much more sense. Why they why didn't he, like this is the thing about movies as well, that everything has to be escalated. So like suddenly these guys have to be able to take down forty men. Like Right. Nonsense. Also, in the middle of this whole thing, D'Artagnan awkwardly flirts with Constance, who oh, basically tells him off on the grounds that, like, basically his flirting is good enough for all the, like, women living out in the sticks in Gascony, but uh, not good enough for the sophisticated Parisian ladies. Uh, what What is it he says? She's like, um, are you always this full of yourself? And then he says, only on Tuesdays or with beautiful women? Yeah, something like that. It's a dumb line. Because it it definitely comes back at the end. It does. He's like, only on Tuesdays or with beautiful women. I think she says, are you always this forward? And he's like, only on Tuesdays or when it's with a beautiful woman. Yeah, something like that. Oh, God, it's just... (sighs) But after they've killed uh, all of these guards, the next day, I'm assuming it's the next day, the four of them... um, are summoned to see King Louis the Thirteenth, and Richelieu is like, we should really severely punish these people. Richelieu played by Christoph Waltz, by the way, right? Because um, they killed the twenty that, people. Yeah, and Queen Anne and Constance, Constance, who had met uh, D'Artagnan during the fight, um, is waiting there, and D'Artagnan's trying to do it, flirting with his eyes at this point. It just looks oh, so bad, um, so. They get taken in to see the Queen Anne and King Louis. And King Louis looks like he's about to give out to them. We're going to get to King Louis in a second in this movie. Oh, my God. Um, uh, but Queen Anne comes in and is like, I heard it was quite the scuffle. 
And then King Louis like, ha ha ha, boys will be boys. Yeah, and it's this whole like gross dynamic. So essentially, Constance inexplicably and with zero character development whatsoever, apparently now wants to fuck D'Artagnan. So she then basically like talks Anne into encouraging leniency. And then Louis agrees to the leniency because he wants to like finally fuck his wife. I'm uncomfortable with the use of the the flagrant use of this word, the <laughs> F word. So make love um, is what I would say to both of these, because I would never swear. Um, That's not how I would describe any of these relationships. I refuse to, make, to give that terminology to any of these both, people. They're both perfect matches and they would like to make love to each other. Um, but we have Louis, Louis, who is the weakest human being character who's ever been yep oh my god it's just i don't i don't get it i don't understand it i don't understand what the hell is going on with this he's he's playing it all right remember we were talking about braveheart sarah and i yes. was like Longshanks's kid and he's played in the most overtly gay way possible um and as you said before, there was historical record that he may have been gay, right? And they haven't played this overtly gay character because they couldn't just come out and say it, right? I mean, overtly gay to... in the sense of like the worst possible stereotypes, the, but basically the, like missing and effeminate, yeah. It's a negative stereotype. Right, as opposed to like if you want that's... to make him gay, just like have him make out with a dude. 100%, just have him do that, right? And he's gay, he's gay, that's what we want. That's That's what happens and that's what he was in real life. This movie does roughly the same with King Louis, where he he has no backbone. He's apparently completely idiotic. He's very interested in fashion, but he's not even like a trendsetter in fashion. He's a big follower in fashion. He's following two years before, and he's looking at other people. Like he's looking at Buckingham's Buckingham clothing, and he's wanting to. And it's just it's so. It doesn't need to be this way. Like again, harping back to the to the nineteen ninety three movie, he was a kid, played by a kid because he was a kid in real life. Right. Yeah. I mean, he seemed kind of like immature and silly, and like not maybe a great ruler. But you know, basically, he was. You know, but there wasn't anything that wrong with him except that he clearly just didn't quite know what was what he was doing. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas in this, Queen Anne. Uh, I think she's, um, you know, I think she's she's given him the eye a few times. Like, there's there's definite like she's, she, you know, she wants him to do to her what he's clearly pretending that he wants to do to her, if that makes sense. Right. Um, she's she's effectively saying to um, Constance, "I wish Louis would be more assertive with me when we're alone and all this sort of stuff." And you're like, yeah, I get that, but. There's no reason for him to not be assertive when they're alone. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever because they're they're being played by people in their twenties here. Right. It worked much better in the other movie where they were clearly like awkward and fifteen and like neither of them really knew what sex was. Exactly. Uh so then we have uh effectively the king and queen. Um and they're a good match. But Richelieu doesn't want them to be a good max or match, and he thinks he's got a good way of defeating Louis. And what he's going to do is have 
Milady de Winter um, plant evidence that Queen Anne has been having an affair with Buckingham. Right. So she has a kind of, you know, dumb steampunk parkour situation where she uh, plants some fake love letters and then steals Anne's diamond necklace and hands it over, I guess, to Buckingham. And I think the plan is supposed to be that then Louis is going to execute her and declare war on England. And then apparently in Richelieu's extremely convoluted plan, all of the French people will say, wait, we don't want to go to war and be led by this beta cuck. So can Richelieu be king now? Yeah, it's it's super random. Like, also the thing about it is, Richelieu is trying to set up Buckingham because um, he wants to bring Buckingham down as well. So the idea is that Richelieu wants a weak England. So he's setting it up so it looks like Buckingham is having an affair with the French Queen, which will lower Buckingham's standards or standing in Britain, while at the same time lowering King Louis' standing uh, so that they'll revolt on him when he tries to go to war. At the same time, Buckingham seems to be playing two different sides as well. Like This all comes to a head when they have a meeting with Buckingham and he shows up in the airship that he's built in the last year. Right. And then it also like the whole additional issue is, of course, I'm sorry, why does Richelieu think that all of a sudden then all of the people of France will say, no, can this cardinal dude be the king now? Yeah, I don't. It doesn't make. Right. (laughs) Richelieu is so badly set up in this movie. Like he's meant to be the power behind the throne, but he doesn't make any sense. So I said, Milady de Winter breaks in doing all this steampunk stuff and plants the letters um at the same time uh and this is where the timeline kind of gets a little bit buggered up for me because in comes buckingham and he's got a steampunk airship and he lands it and louis says to richelieu i don't know why he's saying it to richelieu why don't i have one of those and rochefort is there as well and they're like okay we'll get you one of these and then he has one by the end of the movie. Right. Like, I don't, like, how quickly did they make this? And not only make it, modify it, because they have a much bigger and stronger one by the end of the year. But we'll get to that later on. Um, yeah, there's also a whole thing with, so Louis has, I think we kind of hinted at earlier, keeps asking Richelieu, like, oh, what color is Buckingham wearing and, I don't know, I guess they said that Buckingham was wearing green, so Louis wearing green, and then Buckingham shows up wearing blue and looks at Louis and says, like, oh, your outfit is so retro, and then my eyes rolled back into my head forever. <laughs> it's it's so retro. I believe we were all wearing that in London about mm, 18 months ago. It's like, oh, come on. And then he comes up to Queen Anne. He's like, oh, Queen Anne, I'm so delighted to meet you again. And then she's like... <laughs> I hate this movie. (laughs) So then the next day, uh, Louis finds the false letters and it basically implies that she's given Buckingham this diamond necklace. And that's when Milady the Winter breaks in to steal the diamond necklace. Oh, no, sorry. Or she had already stolen it. But so then because 
I guess in the fake love letters, then Rachel also made sure to kind of have a hint in the love letters that the that um, Anne had given Buckingham the necklace as a token of her love. So then Richelieu tells Louis, because he knows the diamond necklace is in fact gone, that he should, as to prove whether or not she's having an affair, should tell her, oh, we're having this ball and you have to wear this necklace at the ball. Good. And the three musketeers uh, know that this has been set up. So they're like, we have to go and get the necklace. Because Where Constance tells, uh, tells them, Constance I, tells them. I want to acknowledge the rare moments in which the two, I guess, three women in this movie do anything. Exactly. So Constance comes in and she's like, oh, but they're trying to set up the queen and we don't know where it is. And then, th- so Athos, Portos and Aramos are, are sitting around and they're like, oh, and also we have to introduce James Corden at this point. Um, yeah. Uh, he's in the movie uh, just getting shat on by the three musketeers who are all dicks to him. Yeah, he's their Which, servant. Yeah. And it's like, Ugh. we're supposed to like these people who are just being this like huge asshole to this guy that they hired who clearly really admires them. Yeah, and I think it's just playing up the fact that James Corden is an unlikable dude. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, or not that I he's gone past especially his like or whatever, James but, Corden, but... But I mean, like, you could have had... You could have had Luke Evans play that part and still have people... Like, if, if everyone's just crapping on you, Oh god, it's just it's bad. But uh, they because they get this thing, they all decide we have to go to London and take back the um jewels which are going to be held where Buckingham keeps all of his things in the Tower of London, where he lives apparently, because he lives in the Tower of London. Sarah, does Buckingham live in the Tower of London? He does not live in the Tower of London. I, I, are you sure? Because this movie would suggest that he lives in the Tower of London. I feel very confident that he did not live in the Tower of London. I also feel very confident that the French did not bomb the Tower of London in the early 17th century. Well, But that's a different we're going, story. We're going to get to that in a minute. Um, so they head over there. And Milady is there with... So Milady gets sent by Richelieu. Now this is where I'm not sure uh, where... Things alliances seem to have changed here because Richelieu sends her to Buckingham to steal the jewels. Yeah, so I guess she's a double agent who agent. was working for with Buckingham and he thinks she still is, but really she's working for Richelieu. Right, so she goes over there, and but they have this bit where Richelieu is basically looking at her boobs, and then he gives her a letter which says that everything you did, you did at Richelieu's orders or whatever. So this is her get out of jail free card, and she, what I'm thinking is if she gets caught with that by Buckingham, she's going to be killed, um, because Buckingham thinks that she works for him. Right. Though maybe she's already created a whole story for him according to which she's... Maybe she's pretending to him that she's a triple agent or something. Yeah, I think that's... It's so convoluted. But she goes to Buckingham and she's like, well, if the three musketeers come after it, and they will Buckingham, this is what they will do. And she says that Portos will try and come in with subterfuge and Atos will try and sneak his way in and Aramis will use his 
God-given uh, agility and acrobatics to get in. So we should ban all of these areas. But the Three Musketeers actually send Logan Lerman in because he's got none of those skills. Right. So he gets captured immediately because, of course, he does. But it turns out that he was meant to get captured and the whole thing was a decoy because they knew that Milady knows their style of fighting and so they did not what she would have expected. Yeah, so they they did this. They knew Milady was going to be there and they outsmarted a simple-minded woman like this. So she thought she was smart, but not as smart as these men, Sarah. I mean, women don't. Women can't be smart. Of course, that's. I think that's what this movie is telling us. Um, so they get there and they capture. Uh, sorry, and they start bombing Buckingham's uh, Tower of London using his airship, which they'd stolen earlier. Um, at the same time, Milady goes on a runaway, and it turns out that she's got that the the carriage driver is actually Planchette, who is uh, James Corden, and um, he basically has her in his. Uh, in her carriage and after they blow up the tower of london they sneak off in their airship and pick up the carriage and that's actually a kind of an that that would be a genuinely funny scene it could yeah i do just want to once again add in i actually was in the tower of london about a month ago and it was not blown up in fact are are you telling me this was not real no Oh, well, um, <laughs> uh, there is a bit where um, she, the, the, the reason I like this, she goes, where are you taking me? And he just goes Meh, up and she goes to what? And then the ship takes it off. And I think that would have been funny in another movie. But the fact yeah. that both of these people deliver it with zero feeling, it just. Ugh. Yeah. So they capture Milady. They get the necklace from her. Um, at that point, Athos, her ex, is supposed to kill her, and instead she jumps off the ship to drown slash be crushed in the water below, um, and Athos immediately goes, oh, she did that for me, because, you know, God it forbid is, a man ever have to do anything hard. It is, this is just, I don't, I, he's standing, he's got a, right, so for people who haven't seen this movie. He has a gun pointed at her while she's standing on what would be the plank in a pirate ship, right? So she's effectively walking the plank. He has a gun pointed at her. He cocks it because he's about to pull the trigger. trigger. And then she throws herself off backwards. She tells him she loves him, I think. And then throws herself off backwards to mm. fall down into the channel below. Um... And then he turns to the way and she goes, she did that for me so that I didn't have to kill her. Yeah, fuck that. What? Dude, what are you even talking about? You did kill her. The reason she threw herself off the ship is because you were pointing a gun at her. But, you know, good for you that you now can pretend that you had no responsibility for any of anything because, again, God forbid a man have to deal with emotions. It just, it's nonsense right now then we cut back to something which had happened just a few minutes in earlier in the movie we didn't talk about and i didn't figure out why and i still don't understand the significance of this at some point rochefort uh captures 
Constance. She was, I think, disguised as one of the musketeers to throw them off so they wouldn't know the musketeers were en route to London. But, yeah, but she comes in and they're like, oh, we've got her. And it's like, okay, and sure. finally we've got some good news. And he throws out Constance and then recently smiles and then it cuts to the next scene where it turns out that even though all of this seems to have happened very, very quickly, Richelieu has built his own airship, which is a bigger and better version of Buckingham's. And they show up and start attacking the Three Musketeers in their airship. This is the Three Musketeers who are suddenly very competent at flying and using the airship that they've never been in before. Apparently, yes. Also, with no plot development whatsoever, D'Artagnan and Constance are apparently deeply and madly in love with one another. Yes, and the reason that I brought it up, uh, bringing up, brought up her being captured, is that she's suddenly strapped to the masthead of this, and which is like a dumb started, fucking started, steampunk skeleton. I want to add. Yeah, sorry to the figurehead, not to the masthead, and she's there's no reason for it other than we can get a nice shot of her heaving. Yeah, pretty like, much. It's really it irritating. It's, um, and then Rochefort uh, stops and they, they lay out a plank and he's like, come over here, uh, D'Artagnan, with the crown jewels. And what we'll do is we'll swap you for Constance. And they pass on the plank and he's like, I love you. And she's like, I love you. And then she goes on to the ship and then he goes on to, he's meant to hand the crown jewels to um, Rochefort. And of course, Rochefort just captures him. <laughs> yep. He's not an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> there's no reason for this whatsoever. And then he's like, start blowing them up. And it also involves this bit where the musketeers have a chance to escape, and it just—the three musketeers look to D'Artagnan for like to make the decision in this and they're like dude he's like 14 i know why are you letting this guy do anything just say yeah no fuck off we're not trading the necklace for the girl we're going home we're going home good luck i mean and you know Uh, like not that i don't you know i don't know appreciate not just killing women for no reason but it is like a you know battle sequence and also she and d'artagnan barely know each other yeah uh it yeah it makes no sense then rochefort um and d'artagnan have a duel they crash the airship onto the top of notre dame um and they have a big fancy duel there where rochefort kicks his ass and then inadvertently he knocks d'artagnan's sword up into the air and then for some reason doesn't stab him straight away he just stands there for a second and has enough time for the sword to come up come back down D'Artagnan catches it and stabs him. And it's just like, uh, yeah, it really is a boo moment. Um, and it's terrible. It's it's absolutely terrible. The 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 big ship, or the, this is Buckingham's ship, I think at this point, is the one that's left uh, on top of, um, on top of... Uh, Notre Dame. Notre Dame. And then the rest of them take the other uh, steampunk um, ship Back to, I'm assuming it's the palace. I guess. Is it? Is it palace in Versailles? I don't think it should be, but it is. It's a it, palace well, that no, yeah. looks like Louis the Fourteenth's Versailles. Yeah, it, it's definitely Versailles. But I'm just trying to think: Do they say we're going to Versailles? 
Oh, I don't remember if they actually say that. It's just clearly what it is. Yeah, but it is. It is what it is. And it, it shouldn't have been where they were going to. But um, they go to the palace anyway and they land the air, airship. Constance sneaks out the back and she gets the necklace to Anne. So then Anne shows up and she's wearing the necklace and then Louis's like, oh yeah, I haven't been cuckolded. Um, right. But I reckon he's been cuckolded a lot. I reckon Anne has been getting it from Like she, she's a saucy minx. Like, um, <laughs> sorry, I don't <laughs> throw, throw shade her way. I think she's having a great time. I mean, in she's, the book she did. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, um, <laughs> so, um, this destroyed the airship, and they're all like, "Hey, Louis, this is what we did. Rochefort's dead. We brought this airship for you. Yeah, we made this airship for you, and also we got it from Richelieu's permission. And they give them Milady's letter, and Richelieu's like, "Oh, I'm not gonna say anything. I better keep my mouth shut or whatever." Um, because Louis reads out, he's like, "Look, look, look what it says, Richelieu. It says." The, what I did, I did with permission of Richelieu. Thanks a million, Richelieu. You made me an airship. You're the best. And then Richelieu's like, oh, yeah. And he says to the three musketeers, why don't you join my guard? And but they're all like, no, yeah, they off, you're fuck evil. Right <laughs> and then we cut to the stinger, stinger scene. <laughs> and in the stinger scene, we see Milady waking up and she's on a boat in the ocean and it turns out that Buckingham is there and he's like, well, I have to get revenge, Milady. We fished you out when you fell out. You just happened to fall in front of us, even though that timeline makes zero sense. Nope. Um, and also, if she fell, they were, they're clearly two miles up in the air. You're falling from there. You're you're hitting the water. You're it's you might as well you would be better off hitting concrete. You'd have a better chance of surviving. Um, so she hits the uh, she hits the concrete, but somehow or the water somehow she manages to survive. And Buckingham's like, "You're with me now, uh, and we're going to battle France." And then it cuts out to show that he's got a massive fleet and about twenty airships. There's also no explanation of the timeline in terms of how long it took to build these airships. But whatever, I guess. And then the song at the end starts playing and it contains the lyrics traveling at the speed of love. Yeah, there's also something um, about like the innocent getting old. It's not a very good song. Uh, we should we should play it, it as the uh, the intro music. Oh, we will. Certainly. Yeah, this we will. awful fucking song. Um, it's an awful, awful movie. Just in case people don't realize that this, this is... I think this is worse than Legend of the Sword that we've done. It it might Arthur be movie. close. I think I might hate it less, but it's worse. It is. It's bad. It's really bad. Um, and also, everything that happens in it is wrong. <laughs> Oh, we're going to get to that now when we start our new section. I don't even, I can't even bring it in myself to go, there it falls. Um, Sarah, can you just tell us about all of the things that this movie got, I was going to say right, but wrong, wrong. Yeah, so first of all, there's a lot of things about just the visuals of this movie. Uh, Richelieu's guards inexplicably are dressed like weird steampunk faux Templars, uh, 
the guards of uh, the these sort of English guards who are clearly in the Stuart monarchy have uniforms with Tudor roses. So who knows why that's happening? Uh, when they're in Venice, the marble stri- uh, striping in the vault is very clearly Tuscan Gothic, and I am unreasonably annoyed about this. No, you say it's unreasonably <laughs> annoyed. I think it's just the right amount of annoyance. And then we get to Paris. So there's a couple of aerial shots and horrific CGI of Paris. And in all of them, Paris very obviously has this very clean grid system as opposed to a tangle of medieval streets. That is Paris as it looks like by the end of the renovations of Paris under Haussmann, where he basically like bulldozed and destroyed all the nice medieval streets. That began in 1853. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which is which is after this movie. Yeah. Um, uh, I also, I did not write down the exact date on this, but uh, Notre Dame went through some pretty significant restorations in the 19th century as well. Um, those restorations included these like bright green statues that are on the roof of Notre Dame, one of which actually depicts the 19th century restorer, Violet Le Duc. Yeah, yeah they're Sarah running around those. Point- <laughs> Sarah pointed this out to me. Uh, she was like, uh, she was like, what the, what the fuck are these statues? And I was going, just the statues on top of Notre Dame. She's like, that's the guy who redesigned it in the 19th century. So... <laughs> Because obviously they didn't actually film this on top of Notre Dame, right? So the logic behind this is that they made a set of the top of Notre Dame and then still put in the redone statues from the 19th century. Right, so clearly just nobody even bothered looking up if Notre Dame looked the same way in, what, 1625-ish, I think is when this movie takes place. I think that's where it's set. Um, Nobody, just clearly nobody even bothered looking up what Notre Dame or what the city of Paris looked like in that period. Exactly. Uh, Now, can you tell us how how spot on did they get Louis? Not great. Uh, His utter incompetence is vastly exaggerated. Um, uh, well, uh, and you know, once again, there is the issue as you mentioned before. So he is somebody who, according to at least some rumors, might have also had had affairs with men. But if you're going to make somebody be gay, just make him be gay. Don't make him this like kind of weak, mincing figure. And also, if they're going to really emphasize how into fashion he is, at least make the dude a fashion icon. Because apparently, this is the man who popularized wigs for men. So at uh, least like give him the respect of being a leader in uh, in men's fashion. Just uh, for our listeners, Sarah just gave me a very pointed look when she said wigs for men. I feel I feel attacked by that comment. I'm not sure why he said as he squeaked <laughs> his balding head, but it was it was it was there was a definite knowing look like a wigs for men, Ollie. I was like, damn. I mean, don't you want those long, curly 17th and 18th century locks? I want to have a wig that is so curly that I could take part in an Irish dancing competition. <laughs> I'll give you curly um, hair the... care tips for your wig. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. You've got the natural curls there, Decker. See, some of us were born with the long, silky 
a hair that made a beautiful ponytail in the mid 90s but that fell out by the time I came around to 2002 so <laughs> I was born with a hair that uh, uh looked like a sad cloud when I was in my early oh. teens <laughs> but now I know what to do with it <laughs> yeah she definitely doesn't look like a sad cloud now she definitely does look like a sad cloud <laughs> um so sir um did they blow up England? Uh, they they did not century. blow up England. Um, and also, the Duke of Buckingham was not living in the Tower of London, which they bombed to get at him. And also, although he is influential, he's not that influential. There is still a king of England who seems all but irrelevant in this movie, particularly at the end where the Duke of Buckingham starts a war, I guess, yeah, I, without I the apparent consent I, of the king. It it makes no sense to me. I I I've said before I love the uh, I love Alexander Dumas's books. All right, uh, Count of Monte Cristo might be my favorite book I've ever read. Uh, well, sorry, after the Wheel of Time, I'll, I'll take an account. Um, Count of Monte Cristo is great, but it's it's an it's an amazing book. But oh my god. Buckingham should be the shadowy figure in the background, not doing, not doing an awful lot, but like doing a lot, right? This notion that somehow he's running England as is their war leader and can sanction a war, like what? Yeah, like it, it makes no sense whatsoever. No, I will say though, I'm just gonna give them props for like exactly one thing. Which is that I looked up some pictures of Buckingham and Steampunk Orlando Bloom kind of looks like the Duke of Buckingham. <laughs> and he's a dedicated follower of fashion, obviously. So, honestly, I will say, not not the worst casting. Good job, guys. <laughs> Good job of getting somebody who looks like a character that's not really needed. <laughs> um, did they get anything right? Uh, so I would say there's a couple of things they got right that they brought in from the book. Uh, so apparently the beef between D'Artagnan and Rochefort does in fact start with Rochefort insulting his dumb horse. So uh, good on them for that. Um, and the whole thing about like Richelieu's pardon to Milady and D'Artagnan then stealing the pardon. Uh, that's also in the book. Um, there is, however, a bunch of other things that are in the book that they screwed up. Uh, so, for example, in the book, Anne really is actually having an affair with the Duke of Buckingham. Um, mm-hmm. And at the end, so Richelieu actually invites D'Artagnan to join the Musketeers and gives him a letter. And D'Artagnan kind of first tries to give it to Athos and Porthos and Aramis, and they all say no. And then D'Artagnan takes it and, join the, and joins the Musketeers. Yeah, no. You mentioned as well um, here that uh, Anne is definitely, you know, having an affair and making love to Buckingham. And that Constance is married. Right, right and yes. And the lady kills her, right? There's yes. a TV show. There was a cartoon TV show I watched as a kid called The Muskehounds, right? Which were dog versions of The Musketeers. It was a French cartoon. I want to watch this and, more than anything else that has ever been made. Yeah, uh, <laughs> And and in this, um, if I remember correctly, it's been a long, long time since I watched it. Is that Murphy but yawning in, in this, the background was, because he knows you're talking about Murphy. dogs? And he's like, oh, are you saying hounds? Sure, I'm a hound. Sure. He's coming over and I'd say hello. But um, 
in the Muscahines, um D'Artagnan is in love with Constance and Milady the Winter kills her and that's what fuels his need for revenge right. against Milady. Milady who is played by a cat. <laughs> Although that then raises a lot in terms of the relationship between Milady and Athos. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, that I don't think they bring that up. Just uh, I think they're just friends in it. Uh-huh. But yeah, she's she's played by a cat. Uh, everyone else is a dog. Richelieu, if I I think Richelieu is played by an Afghan hound. Oh. Like their their cartoon version, but he looks like it definitely. If I remember correctly, is a, I definitely got an Afghan hound. Is Portos is a is a Saint Bernard. Um, Aramis the attack one is like a Doberman. Uh, I can't remember what Athos is. Dogtanian. It's Dogtanian. Yeah, a beagle. That's what they call him. They call Do- him Dogtanian. Dogtanian, oh. yeah. Uh, uh, Dogtanian and the Muscahounds. Uh, that sounds adorable. Uh, 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 Muscahounds are always ready. One for all and one for all. Hounds are ready. That's the team tune. Um, <laughs> I desperately want to watch this. Oh, we, my, yeah, my brothers watch this religiously, which is to say we watched it every Sunday. Oh, Planchet um, is a bear. Planchet is a bear, yeah. Uh, no, is he, is he a bear or is he a big friendly um, mountain dog? Wikipedia says he's a bear. Oh well, it's been. I said it's been a long, long time since I watched it. I I remember him being a big, fluffy white mountain dog type thing. Um, but yeah, he could have been a big bear. Yeah, Opie <laughs> also apparently realizes we're talking about dogs and is saying hello. Oh well, it's uh, it this was a, a lot of fun show. Did Milady get a pardon? Yeah, so that whole thing with like that uh, Richelieu gave her that kind of blanket pardon and then D'Artagnan or somebody kills her and then D'Artagnan passes it off as his pardon for having executed Milady. So that whole thing is actually drawn from the book, which I will say I did not realize that because I honestly thought it didn't make much sense that you would give somebody a pardon without writing their name on it. But sure. Uh, I just I lo- I love that whole mechanic, though, of somebody writes a letter <laughs> without putting a name on it mm-hmm. and then somebody else uses it. It's like, well, I don't know what you expected. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sarah, is there anything in this movie that you think would be worthy of us doing a Historia Veritas? So I actually wanted to talk about the man who I believe in particular would be turning in his grave if he knew that this movie exists. And that oh, is... Buckingham. <laughs> Poor Buckingham. It could have been Buckingham. But I was actually talking about the author of the book, The Three Musketeers, Alexandre Dumas. Ooh, so which leads us into our next section. Historia et veritas. So first of all, oh, sorry. Also, uh, I was just going to say, I am going to replace these eventually. Uh, And no matter how many people say, oh, yeah, I love it when Ali sings them. No. It's bad. Anyway, no. Alexander Dumas. The singing is great, and I am opposed to it ever being replaced. Yeah, I'm, well, <laughs> I do all the editing, so. <laughs> True, I can't technically stop it. I could just voice my displeasure. Alexander Dumas, tell us all about him. So, first of all, one of the things that I do want to actually point out that might not be uh, expected for a number of people is that Alexander Dumas is actually not a white dude. Um, so his father, Thomas Alexandre David de la Payetterie, 
uh, was born to a French nobleman stationed in Haiti and his uh, slave of African descent, Marie Cissette Dumas. Um, and in fact, the uh, his name Dumas comes from his grandmother because that's the name that his father ultimately adopted when he kind of had a falling out with his father, Alexandre's grandfather. Hmm. Um, and uh, it is kind of worth noting that uh, Alexandre himself was very much aware of his own mixed race heritage. He was visibly, you know, not a you know one hundred percent white person, and he did apparently face some discrimination as a result. Um, however, he was, uh, just, yeah. uh, I've read every one of his books, uh, and I did not know Alexander Dumas was not a white guy. Yeah. Ex- I feel like most people do not know that. Um, uh, and, uh, I don't remember the name of it, but I think there actually is a new book out about his father. Um, and in particular his father's, you know, experiences as basically a, you know, black uh, or, um, you know a uh, black or biracial nobleman in France. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, but you know, he was, however, extremely successful in his life. Um, so, uh, impressively, he's actually mostly self-educated. His father died when he was four and he seems to have like kind of known how to read and then basically just like read a bunch of stuff in the house and also taught himself Spanish. Um, uh, and by his early twenties managed to obtain a position with, uh, Louis Philippe, who uh, he then supported in the revolution of 1830 and who then became the kind of king. in I think one of those periods where France had something that sort of looked a little like a constitution monarchy my friends who actually do 19th century france will probably be angry at me when they actually hear this because uh, i'm probably not doing a great job of explaining 19th century france yeah. um but uh so dumas started out initially as a very successful playwright and then moved into writing novels and was really successful even in his lifetime and already in his lifetime his novels started to be translated into english so he was successful not only in france but beyond However, despite making a ton of money, he seems to have been basically constantly broke because he spent all of his money very fast on dissolute living, including having apparently up to 40 mistresses. Ooh. And had at least four different children by four different women. (laughs) (laughs) Good job, Dumas. Yeah. So he uh, he ended up leaving France for a number of years. Uh, so Louis Philippe got ousted in the revolt in 1848, and Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, who I think is the original Napoleon's grandson, um, mm. became the president. And so Dumas fled, uh, which got him kind of away from Napoleon, Louis Napoleon, who didn't like him, and also uh, helped him get out of his crushing debt. Um, and he uh, traveled around Belgium for a bit. He ended up living in Russia for a really long time and, uh, then finally went to Italy for a few years and participated in the Italian unification movement. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he is an interesting guy who lived a pretty full life. Uh, he also at some point started, like, writing, like, travelogues, basically, toward the end of his life about basically, like, look at these fun things I saw in Russia and Italy. Um... <laughs> And wrote a lot of really fantastic novels, including this one, of course, uh, and uh, The Man in the Iron Mask. It's sequel. And isn't there one in between, actually? There is, yeah. yeah. The Man in the Iron Mask is, is 25 years after. Yeah, and there's one that's in between. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Count of Monte yeah. Cristo, which is a fantastic novel. 
Um, uh, and yeah, he was actually a pretty interesting dude who uh, I think would have hated this movie. Uh, one thing about the Count of Monte Cristo is... You said Count of Monte Cristo. I just want to point out. <laughs> <laughs> the Count of Monte Cristo. Um, and it's, you know, he's, he's all about that good crisp fry. Um, but the Count of Monte Cristo, uh, there's a long section in the middle of it where it involves people uh, or him describing calisthenics. Uh-huh. Uh, it's like, oh, and you need to do your push-ups like this, and you need mm. to do sit-ups like this, and you should stretch. And it's like, when you're reading it, and I find it with a lot of books of this era as well. You get it in Victor Hugo's books as well. I love um, Victor Hugo's digressions so <laughs> much. <laughs> it's like, here's, here's 20 pages about how to eat at a, a fancy dinner uh held in a court like oh this is interesting i didn't know any of yeah this. and like for those who have only seen the musical of les mis and have never read the book at like the climactic scene in the sewers it just says they go down and then he's like and now i'm going to write a hundred pages with the entire history of the paris sewer system it's a it's a fascinating it's really interesting system <laughs> yeah um, but yeah it's like they go down uh here's a hundred pages of the history of the sewer system and then and then we get our ending right <laughs> okay <that's sweet. laughs> excuse me so he died in 1870 yeah so he died in 1870 uh having returned to paris in about 1864 so he did get to spend the last few years of his life back at home in france uh and his mm. son is apparently is uh, also an author and playwright when he got back to Paris in 1864, had the Heisman Project started? Uh, yes, it started in 1853. <laughs> and I think Hausman yeah. was in charge of it until, uh, like, I think actually also about 1870, although there are parts of it that weren't completed until uh, the like early 20th century or so. Hmm. I think also it would have so, been during his lifetime. I might have been during his lifetime. I'd have to double check. It might be a little bit later that the... Um, um, no, I think it would have been around during his lifetime that the uh, Notre Dame restorations began. Perfect. Um, yeah, those would have been okay. in the 1840s. So, so this leads us into our last or our second last section, Fabula Nostra. This is where we uh, we we basically come up with a better version of this movie, and in this better version of the movie we try to uh you know come up with something interesting and exciting that um that might be worth watching rather than this version of the three musketeers so this section is called fabula nostra see that was genuinely really good it was it was beautiful yeah keep going Thing. No, 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 no! I'm not gonna do it. So, would you um, would you like to tell us what your version of this movie would be? Sure. So, uh, I will say I appreciated that they actually gave Milady something to do because I felt like she got a bit sidelined uh, in the 1993 movie. So I appreciated that she had a bit more to do. I just thought everything about what she did have to do in her whole dumb ninja situation was terrible, and I hated it. Um, and there was also a bit of that, like, modern feminist in the Middle Ages with her all of a sudden being like, I can fight just as good as these men can. It's like, all right, come on. <laughs> um, so instead, inspired by that, 
and inspired by the fact that, honestly, in this movie in particular, the Musketeers are giant assholes. I would like to make a movie where Milady is, in fact, our kind of hero or anti-hero, but who the movie, in fact, revolves around. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this, this, wait, didn't, didn't we just already see that movie? No, because she's just going to be the main character. Well, I mean, we saw it in the sense that, um, you know, she is more compelling and interesting than any of the men who are terrible. Uh, but Much um, more so. This is going to be that, you know, it's going to be revolving around her, but it's going to be more focused on, uh, you know, the kinds of things that you see in the book where she really does uh, use her wits and intelligence uh, to make her way in a world where she does honestly get kind of screwed over in part because of her gender. Um, so I, uh, I would like to cast Charlize Theron as our Milady de Winter. And mm-hmm. I also would like to keep Kristoff uh, Waltz and as Richelieu and Mads Mikkelsen as Rochefort, but actually give them something to do in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. As opposed to... This sounds excellent. Yeah. And I would like to have Kiefer Sutherland reprise his role as Athos. Oh, will he get that luscious long hair? Again? Oh, yes, he will. <laughs> Period costume for you is back, Kiefer. Oh, I bet he loves it. <laughs> Um, and I am also, however, sticking with my idea from when I cast the, uh, my alternate three musketeers for when we did the 1983 version. I really like my idea of Alden Ehrenreich playing like an asshole D'Artagnan, who would then officially be the main antagonist in this movie. Yeah, I like this. I like, yeah, this sounds interesting to me. So what is Charlize Theron as Milady de Winter going to do? So I think she's basically, I think I would basically just be focusing on the fact that she's somebody who, uh, both because I think she's originally is born relatively poor, and then um, uh, because she, you know, I guess like commits a crime, but like her crimes are crimes that honestly a man probably would have gotten away with, um, uh, that she really does kind of get screwed over. And uh, that she then essentially turns to basically being um, a, like a kind of spy, essentially, just as a way to actually get by. Um, And so it's going to be very focused on the fact that like, that is the basis for her decision-making. And is also actually going to be focused on the fact that she really has every reason to really hate Athos because Athos, I mean, even in the book, it's actually pretty clear. So Athos finds out that she has a criminal past that she hadn't told him about and immediately executes her. And I guess he just like did a shitty job of it and she was fine. (laughs) um uh, but like he's the worst and it's not like he like hears her out and tries to like let her give her side of the story or anything like that and sorry that is my dog and her lovely new uh (laughs) lamb squeak toy in the background yeah she's killing that lamb it's great yeah this is the lamb that uh she killed the one that she had before because it's her favorite and then I had to buy a new one on Amazon, and Amazon would only let me buy three at a time, which I decided I might as well just go ahead and do. I think that's a well-looked-after uh, doggy. <laughs> so she's very happy. So apologies for the Sarah, squeaking in the background. That's okay. Your movie sounds uh, great, Sarah. I genuinely would watch this. Thank you. So what uh, movie would you like to do inspired by The Three Musketeers? Is it a steampunk okay. movie? Uh <laughs> <laughs> um, I may have cut this out I may not have 
but that was the loudest set of squeaks. <laughs> it it was so loud it came through my earphones and was being picked up on my like that's being picked up on my audio, Sarah. <laughs> and I've got noise reducing headphones that don't allow that to happen. I don't know why it's so loud. It's just it's <laughs> such a high pitch as well. It's it's perfect. Right? But <clears throat> so uh, I'll be able to cut out most of that noise. Uh, now it's funny you should mention steampunk because what I've been sitting going over in my head is that I love the Three Musketeers. I don't want there to be another version of the Three Musketeers for a while. So, I'm going to take the idea of medieval step, yeah, early modern setting, plus steampunk. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sorry, it's so and, and I am going to use that idea... <laughs> to to make a version of the video game uh dishonored okay right but i'm still going to bring in a little bit of <clears throat> three musketeers into it right so the main character in or one of the main characters in dishonored is a guy called corvo atana and he was the queen's bodyguard okay so i'm going to have this be an older d'artagnan Ooh. as the queen's bodyguard and i'm going to have him be played by keanu reeves mm. um keanu reeves in his uh gives no fucks i am now a swordsman and also good with guns and stuff because he's got a mini crossbow um, he's also got a steampunk mask, which means that he's able to see like true walls and stuff. So right? is this like but steampunk job, three musketeers slash John Wick? It's it's like steampunk three musketeers like slash John Wick, which is basically what Dishonored is, right? Okay. So his job is to to guard the queen. The queen I am going to have played in this by, and I think we're going to bring back. Um, the queen from the original 1993 version of the movies. Um, the ever lovely... Oh, God, why have I forgotten her name? It's Gabrielle Anwar, right? Gabrielle Anwar, it is. Yeah, I can't believe I forgot Gabrielle Anwar. I had such <laughs> Your crush. Her kid. She'd be so, so I'm offended. So i Gabrielle Anwar. And she gets killed uh, at the beginning by... And in my version of this, it's going to be killed by Rochefort. She gets killed by another assassin mm-hmm. um, in the game but i'm going to have her be killed by rochefort just brutally killed and they're going to set up d'artagnan now my rochefort is not going to be mads mickelson um even though he is a super cool guy i'm going to have my rochefort be a slightly younger man and i'm going to have him be played by chris evans Ooh. because i want people to actually like my version of rochefort um so it's going to be played by chris evans uh, and he's going to be doing like an evil, evil kind of, evil kind of sneer about him. Um, and then did you it's see uh, to... Scott Pilgrim versus the World? I did. Yeah, that's exactly the Chris Evans I'm thinking awesome. of. All right, so he's going to be real short. He's going to kill them. And there's going to be so there's also a, a church thing. They're called the I think they're called the Rectifiers. Mm-hmm. Um, and their leader is going to be Richelieu. Ooh. And I'm going to have that Richelieu. You know, it's tempting to go with Christoph Waltz. He's good. But I'm going to replace him with Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, mm. Because I just think that he could do 
a very good charismatic Richelieu. Interesting. Which is what he would need to be. And it's then going to be up to um, Keanu Reeves to enlist the three musketeers to go and help him exact revenge on Richelieu and Rochefort. And they're going to do it in a steampunk setting. Because to the best of my knowledge, the only steampunk I've ever enjoyed is the Dishonored games. Okay. So if I'm going to do a, a steampunk, I'm going to marry the two. So it's going to be a verse of the Three Musketeers, which is set in basically the Dishonored world. And it's going to follow the structure of the Dishonored game, maybe without the whole talking to the outsider who effectively is a trickster god. We don't need to have that into it. Um, and just to round them out, I might as well have Athos be played by Chris Hemsworth. Um, because I can't, it's very hard to go a movie without, without having myself a Hems in there. It's true. So uh, yeah, so, so that's it. That's, that's what I do. It's going to be a mixture of The Three Musketeers and the video game Dishonored. So it's going to be steampunk, but it's also going to have swords and it's going to be very, very good. And um, do you know, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna change my casting. I'm going to have Willem Dafoe play Richelieu. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I think that's what I'll go with. Yeah, I'm still gonna keep Chris Evans, but I'm gonna have Willem Dafoe as Richelieu. Nice. And then Leonardo, because I just think Leonardo DiCaprio would probably cost me too much yeah. to make this movie. That's true. Yeah, and that's what I go with. Awesome. That sounds good. I would definitely watch that. That sounds way better I'm than this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fingers crossed it would be the video game is uh, very very fun awesome hmm. uh, that leads us on to our last section where we give our summation of the movie and um, what we like to call estimatio where we give it a rating from one to five I, I will go first this time Sarah because <laughs> um, I'm always leaving it to you to go first so I'm going to give this a one out of five um, I'm not going to give it anything lower than a one out of five because we only get one movie that fits that, and this is not as bad as in the name of the king. I mean, it is bad. <laughs> it is real, real bad. But that movie literally makes no sense. So I'm going to say that this is one out of five. Uh, it's got some good actors in it. It's filling out and doing one of the uh, a functionally perfect story. And they decided to slap steampunk on it in a half-assed way. Uh, so yeah, it's it's bad. I don't, I can't, I can't get the idea behind anybody actually enjoying this movie. Like sometimes when you talk about movies, it's like it's okay to like a movie. It's okay to not like a movie. Different people like different things, but I genuinely can't picture in my head the person who really, really, really enjoys this movie. One out of five, bad movie. So I am also going to give it a one out of five. Honestly, in part, I was mostly just horrifically bored through the entire movie. It wasn't even that I hated the characters. I just deeply didn't care about any of them at all. Mm -hmm. Which is obviously the sign of a not very well done movie. And they're just, yeah, I I feel like I honestly can't remember that many other movies that I've been so thoroughly uninvested I mean, at least in some movies, like, I hate them and they're dumb, but at least I have, like, somebody that I'm kind of rooting for. Here, I just deeply didn't care, and I just wanted it to be over. Um, <laughs> also, apologies, there's some cat yelling in the background. My animals are in solid form today. 
Um, <laughs> so I would say the only reason, honestly, that I'm sticking to this one being a one out of five, ultimately, and not giving it a zero out of five, which uh, I believe my one zero out of five remains King Arthur Legend of the Sword, is still that King Arthur Legend of the Sword does have a special place in my heart, so to speak, for the extent to which, as a movie, it just hates women. This, Mm -hmm. I will say, I appreciate that they give Milady a little bit more to do. I think, however, that the romantic relationships, by the way, really are extremely poorly done. And uh, I think the extent to which really the only portrayals of women are very much presented as either them being in relationships that make no sense and are in no way justified, or essentially doing some combination of kind of using their sexuality to destroy men, which is basically what Milady does, um, mm-hmm. is not great. So I certainly do not want to say that I think this movie does well in terms of gender, but it does, however, pass the Ift Decker test, uh, which gives it the right to at least receive a one out of five. <laughs> Perfect. So for passing the Ift Decker test and also just admit it, Sarah, it's because it's traveling at the speed of love. I have always wanted to travel at the speed of love. <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> I, like, is that is that fast? Is it slow? You're the I physicist. Don't, don't you tell it. me. But love <laughs> can't be measured in terms of meters per second. Like, According to this movie, so- it can. <laughs> this movie gets everything wrong. Um, That's actually the speed Sarah, that the steam you... that the that the steamships go at. It's uh, at the speed of love. Well, that would explain <laughs> why they're able to get everywhere immediately. Exactly. Um, Sarah, would you like to talk to our listeners? Of course. Uh, so, dear listeners, please uh, follow us on iTunes. Please rate and review us on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. Uh, You can find us there, as well as on most other podcatching apps, um, just of various kinds. Um, We also would love for you to join our Facebook group that we have now. Um, We are really hoping to kind of continue to keep developing a fun community there for people to talk about the Middle Ages and medieval media. So we would love to have you join us. Um, also, uh, we would love to hear from you. So please contact us via email. We are at media.evilpod at gmail.com. That's M-E-D-I-A dot E-V-A-L-P-O-D at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter at Media Evil Pod. You can also find me on various spots on the internet, um, at Sarah Iftdecker. And Ollie, where else can they find you on the internet? Yeah, you can find me at my other podcast. It's called Best Acquaintances. It's where myself and my uh, my best friend Emily and we just interview people that we've met in various Facebook groups and stuff. And they're all very interesting and and fun episodes. So that's where I met Sarah. Um, and it's just a it's a great it's a great little podcast where everybody gets to tell their little stories. Um, we also have a Facebook group. So just look up uh, Best Acquaintances podcast and just join the nicest group of people on the internet. Just being nice and happy to each other. Now that's not me throwing shade at the medieval uh, <laughs> podcast group, but uh, yeah, Wait, there's a lot of overlap. Both of those. Groups. I think I think there's a lot of there, overlap. Yeah. So uh, it's that. In Best Acquaintances, you could just have a general nice community. And in Media Evil, you can have a nice community that specifically talks about the Middle Ages. Hey, that's pretty much the difference between them. Um, in 
medieval, you're going to get medieval related stuff. In best acquaintances, you're going to get Tato Crisp related memes. And um, Harry and Potter conversation. And Harry <laughs> Potter. Well, of course. If there was a way we could work Harry Potter into this, Sarah, we would definitely have a Harry Potter. We, we could have a kind of side episode at some point about the Latin and Harry Potter. We could, we could do that. <laughs> or we could just do like the Fantastic Beasts ones, just as like a, a little separate. Because, yeah. you know, I, I kind of have a soft spot for the second movie that everyone else hates. Hmm. I hmm. I didn't hate All it right. that much. Anyway. Oh, Sarah, what uh, what movie will we do next week? So, we not that we've actually discussed this, but inspired by Orlando Bloom being in this movie, I wonder if it might be a good time to do Kingdom of Heaven. You're right. We should do The Hobbit. <laughs> Orlando. Would you like to would you like to finally do Kingdom of Heaven? Yeah, let's do Kingdom of Heaven. Okay, so everybody, you heard it here. We are doing Kingdom of Heaven next week. I want to do the first Hobbit movie, but as you could hear Sarah, she has insisted she watches her favorite movie um in much the same way that this movie we did today was Tracy Tanoff's favorite movie. Um <laughs> We're going to be doing Kingdom of Heaven next week. We could do The Hobbit the following week and just have like an Orlando Bloom film festival. <laughs> oh my God, let's do an Orlando Bloom week. <laughs> Orlando Bloom Sarah, Blooms. Orlando Blooms. Blooms yeah. Brill. <laughs> um, Sarah, this was an absolute pleasure as always. Uh, and I look forward to watching Kingdom of Heaven with you sometime in the you next too. week. You too. And yeah, very excited to get to watch Kingdom of Heaven again and to talk to you yeah. next week. <laughs> bye, right, everybody. Bye. When we were young, the world seemed so old, careless and cold. We did what we were told in our lives. When we were young. Had the world by the tail, good would prevail, starships would sail, and none of us would fail in this life, not when you're young. We were drawn to whoever could keep us together and bound by the heavens above. And we tried to survive, traveling at the 